Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter number 9. Hebrews chapter number 9. You might have been wondering why we didn't keep going after verse 10. It sounds like kind of a, a, an odd place to stop <laughs> as we look at this old covenant and we see the futility of it. But this morning, as we look at this passage, um, obviously we will be looking at the Old Covenant. But more importantly, I think what it points to is the holiness of God. So the title of the message this morning is Approaching a Holy God. Approaching a Holy God. The big idea is this. A, A new covenant is necessary because the old covenant cannot fully restore sinful man to a holy God. A new covenant is necessary because the old covenant cannot fully restore sinful man to a holy God. If you're taking notes, hopefully that's a little bit easier to get down. Last week, Andy mentioned that he was going to leave the the tabernacle to me, and uh, and that's I'm, I'm, I'm all over that. So uh, I've actually been spending a lot of time lately in the book of Exodus, um, mostly in Exodus, some in other places as well, uh, spurred on a lot by uh, our study here in Hebrews. Um, and so I've just been, I've been soaking in that a lot. So of course, uh, talking about the tabernacle is something that I've been reading a lot about and, and rereading and going over. And, um, but even with that, I will try to to, as we talk about the tabernacle, not delve too deeply into the tabernacle. We're going to talk about different aspects of it uh, this morning, but that's not the goal of this morning's message. We want, to, we want to look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. So hopefully we'll see in the tabernacle and, and in the author's presentation of the tabernacle, what the author is intending for us to understand as he discusses the tabernacle, but we will go into a little bit more detail. If you notice there in uh, verse number five, it says uh, at the end of it, it says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. And as I look at my watch, I'm realizing uh, we cannot speak in as much detail probably as I would like as well. But, um, but we're going we're gonna to speak probably in a little bit more detail than, than the author did originally. But as I said, the things that we've read so far here in Hebrews chapter 9 feel a little bit negative, do they not? If you read just the next verse, you see things begin to turn around. And, and we will end on a positive note this morning, but, but we need to understand the reality of these first 10 verses here in Hebrews chapter number 9. And that reality is this, that we cannot in our fallen state approach a holy God. We cannot, in our fallen state, approach a holy God. This, this whole context of the tabernacle really st- strikes the, the, the bell of God's holiness. The gong, the sounding board of God's holiness is what is being proclaimed here as, as the author is going through these pieces of the tabernacle. Yes, he is going through it and he's, he's proclaiming these wonders 
that the, the Israelites had as God's people. Um, and, he's, and he's showing how, how great, and he, he's even reveling in a sense in, in the majesty of those rituals and the majesty of the tabernacle itself. And he's, he's talking about how great these things are, but he ends it with the reality that even with all the greatness that is there, the beauty that is there, there is futility. And there's futility because it is that first covenant that reveals to us our sinfulness, reveals to us God's holiness, and it reveals to us the reality that we cannot approach a holy God. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1 there gives us this reality of holiness. It says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And he's going to begin to dive into this earthly place of holiness. So the the focus here is on the holiness of God. And if you remember two and a half years ago, we closed the book literally and figuratively on Genesis. And we ended with with Joseph dying and, and making a proclamation and request that they take his bones out of the land of Egypt. And if you just turn over the next page, you come to Exodus chapter 1 and you see that a Pharaoh is raised up who did not know Joseph. We don't know how much time there was between the time Joseph died and this Pharaoh, but this Pharaoh did not know Joseph, did not understand the relationship that the people of Israel had with the Egyptians. And he saw that they were growing and and, and getting larger and he, he was afraid. He was afraid that they might attack. He was afraid that they might conquer Egypt itself. And so he put them under bondage. And for 400 years, the people of Israel were under bondage, under slavery in Egypt until God called Moses. We get into, I believe, chapter four. God calls Moses and he calls him to go back to Egypt after he had been cast out and go back to Egypt and to rescue his people, to deliver his people. And if you know the story, of course, you, you know that through that process, Pharaoh uh, was not willing to let the people go. He, he liked having those slaves. Um, and so he was not willing to let the people of Israel go out and worship their God. And so God sent 10 plagues, miraculous, amazing plagues to show his glory and his power in the land of his Egypt. And it was through those plagues through the final plague they, that we, we see the Passover is instituted, this wonderful ritual of, of the Israelites that they would practice every year that is a key part of our redemption story. We see them delivered from Egypt. We see them crossing the Red Sea. We see them coming to the Mount Sinai. And it is there at Mount Sinai that God gives to them the law. It is there that he, he actually verbally speaks to them the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you ever noticed that before. That's just something that stood out to me recently. That the Ten Commandments were verbally given by God to the people and they, they could not handle it. They couldn't handle God speaking to them. And so they, they begged Moses to go up and speak with God on their behalf. And God gives to them the entirety of the law. And part of the law that he gives to them, part of the instruction that he gives to them there in Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, are these instructions for a tabernacle, for a holy place. It says in in verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. 
exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Did you notice that first verse though? Why did God want them to have a tabernacle? So that I may dwell in their midst. So that I may dwell in their midst. Now, the purpose of the sanctuary, the purpose of this building that, that the writer of Hebrews is, is talking about is so that God could dwell with his people. But the reality is because God is a holy God, even with, with everything that he described and, and everything that he told them to do to build this tabernacle, all the gold and the silver and the bronze, all the tapestries, all the, all the other different cloths, the linen and everything that's involved. Go, go read it. It starts in chapter 25 of Exodus. So I'm not going to go through everything. All right, go read it. It's fascinating. But all these different things that God specifically told them and they followed everything to the letter of the law there's still a problem because God's holiness cannot dwell perfectly with sinful man. As we look at this passage here in Hebrews chapter 9, really that is the thrust of these first 10 verses. And I want us to see, first of all, that holiness requires separation. Holiness requires separation. In fact, the word holy literally means to be set apart or to be consecrated for a specific purpose. That's what holy means. And God uses this word holy to not only represent himself, but he uses it to represent the separation the Israelites should have from the nations around them. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, he says, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the people's that you should be mine. But even with this chosen people, these people that God had chosen as his own, had had set apart, had, had made holy to himself, even with those people, God was still separate. He was still apart from them. See, if you look at at uh, Numbers chapter 2, you're going to see the, the way that everything was arranged in the camp. And the tabernacle was in the middle of the camp. And all the different tribes would, would set up camp around the tabernacle. And it's, it's interesting when you read Numbers 2.2, it says, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. That, that second part is translated a little bit differently in different translations. Let me read you one from the NASB. It says, The sons of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's households. They shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. So the idea here is that they would be around the tent. They would be facing the tent. They're, they're, when they walked out of their tent in the morning, they would see the tabernacle. They would see the presence of a holy God. They would constantly be facing God. Can you imagine being in that uh, time and, and walking out and seeing a pillar of fire or at night or, or the cloud during the day and knowing that God was there. But yet there is a distance between all of these tents and the tabernacle itself. 
The author of Hebrews doesn't go into detail as much with these beginning things. He kind of starts with the, the physical box of the tabernacle itself. But um, I just wanted to, to kind of talk through this a little bit. See, God was looking for a place to dwell with Israel. And, and I mentioned the cloud and, and the fire. If Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 through 18 tells us a little bit about this. It says, on, that, on the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and at evening it was over the tabernacle, like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always, the cloud covered it by day and, and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after the people of Israel set out, and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Chapter 27 of Exodus describes a court of the tabernacle. There was a, a wall that was set up around the tabernacle, about 150 feet long and about 75 feet wide. Uh, they use cubits. If you go read it, it's cubits. I think it was 100 cubits long and 50 cubits wide. So that kind of gives you general measure, measurements for a cubit. Um, but as you, would, as you would approach, there would be a gate at the front, and that gate was facing east. And so you would walk up to the tabernacle, and there would be walls there. So not only was there a distance between the tents, but even a wall of separation between God and His holiness and the people of Israel, even His chosen people. There was separation by a wall, and this wall of brass poles and, and linen And then when you walk into that entrance, you, you come just a little bit and you see a, a large bronze altar where they would make sacrifices to God. This large brown altar uh, square, and there, would be, there were four horns on, on the four corners of the altar. And then you would walk past that, and, and on the way to the tabernacle, there, there was a, a, a brass basin of water where the priests, as they would do their duties over and over again, they would come and they would wash and make themselves clean. They'd wash their hands. They would wash their feet before they would go into the tabernacle. And it's here that the author of Hebrews picks up this idea of the tabernacle, this reality of the tabernacle. It says in verse 2, For a tent was prepared, the first section in which there was a lampstand, and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called, called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So he talks a little bit about the tabernacle, the, the specific building. That, you, that the priests would walk in and out of as they would, as they would make sacrifices to God. And in there, he, he notes in this first section that there are, there are two things. There's actually three things in here, but he, he mentions two specifically with this. And the first thing is the golden lampstand, which would be on the, on the south side of the wall of, of this room. And it was, it, was a golden, it was what you would think of as a Jewish lampstand. It was a menorah, right? It had seven of these um, oil lamps basically on it. 
And so it was, it was constantly to be lit. It was never to go out. This was one of the duties of the priest to make sure that it was, it was constantly lit, that it always had oil. Secondly, we see that there's the table and, the, and what's called the bread of the presence. This is a, a food sacrifice. And it was, it was 12 loaves of unleavened bread. And, and the 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel as they gave themselves to God. It was also used as, as food for the, for the priests as it was rotated out. And, and that was sitting on top of this table that, that held the, the, the bread of presence, but it also held bowls and pitchers and things like that for the various food offerings and the various drink offerings and, the, and other ritual things that needed to be done. But even in the tabernacle itself, there is separation. If you read on, and we will here in a minute, it says that the priests would go in and out daily into this holy place. But yet there was a veil there. There was a curtain there. And behind that curtain, no one went. If you went behind that curtain, it was death. Behind that curtain, our author here gives us a description. First, he mentions something called the the altar of incense, which was actually inside the holy place. Um, There's some confusion about why he would mention it in, in in reference to the, the most holy place, uh, most scholars believe that what would happen, which we'll see later, is they would take an incense uh, censer and that from the altar of incense, and they would take incense with them behind the veil, and they would offer that incense before God. And we'll see that here in just a minute. So that's why there's this association with the, uh, the altar of incense and the most holy place. All this grandeur, all this wonder, and yet is ineffective. Behind the curtain, we see really just one thing, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant held multiple items that he mentions here, gold, a golden urn of manna, which is a reminder of God's provision. If you remember the story, God provided manna to the people of Israel in the desert, um, when there was no food for them. So it was a reminder of God's provision. There is uh, Aaron's staff that budded. If you're not familiar with that story, you guys need to go read the Old Testament, okay? If you're not familiar with this story, uh, this was a, a time when there were some who were rising up against Aaron as the one who was supposed to be in charge and, and specifically of, of the worship. And God uh, used a, a, uh, a miracle to show that he had chosen Aaron to be the one who was to be the high priest. And so we see here that we, Aaron's staff is a reminder of God's authority to choose who he is using in, in different areas of his work. Then we see the tablets of the covenant, which you would probably all recognize as you know, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, right? Um, so we have, we have the tablets of the covenant, and that is to re- remind us of God's law. And then he describes the, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, there was the cherubim of glory. And, and these were two cherubims, angels, who were on either side of the, of the top of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. And they, and they faced towards one another. And they, their wings were spread out over the middle of the covenant, which he calls the mercy seat. The cherubim remind us of God's glory and the mercy seat 
so aptly named, reminds us of God's mercy. All these wonderful things behind the curtain. And yet because of the holiness of God that rested there, only one time a year, only one person, under very strict regulations, could go beyond that veil. See, holiness requires separation. But not only does holiness require separation, but it requires atonement. Why is the separation there? The separation is there because we are sinners. He is a holy God and we are sinners. And so because of that, there's a separation, but that holiness requires that sin to be atoned for. The holiness of God requires that there be sacrifice made. And so that was the second part of the purpose of the tabernacle. Yes, it was there so that God could dwell with his people, so that his holiness could be there with his people, his presence could be there with his people, but that holiness required the sacrifices and the rituals and the offerings and everything that we were just talking about in chapter number eight. Everything that the priests were doing, that, that old covenant, all of that was required by the tabernacle because of the holiness of God. It says in verse 6, he says, These preparations, talking about the tabernacle and all the things therein, have thus been made. Having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. <clears throat> This word atonement means reconciliation of sinful man to a holy God. Reconciliation of sinful man to a holy God. The reality is this can only be done by the removal of the offense. This reconciliation of sinful man to a holy God can only be done by removing the sinful offense of man. The killing and burning of animals, washing repeatedly to make offerings as these priests would regularly go in and out of the temple, yet they could not go beyond the veil. Even those, those daily offerings that they made, they, they, they didn't do everything that, that was necessary to, to bring man back into perfect relationship with God. Even after the Day of Atonement, the Israelites couldn't walk behind the veil. They couldn't worship God in His holiness because it had, it had only done, it only taken away the earthly things. It had never changed their hearts. And there needs to be atonement. Even though it was not perfect atonement, there was still atonement made here in the tabernacle. It's interesting, he, he says that the, whole, that the priest makes atonement for the the unintentional sins of the people. And uh, the idea there, looking at other translations and, and uh, wondering about that myself, it's, it has the idea of ignorance. has the idea of doing things out of ignorance. And, and I believe Paul had this in mind when he speaks about himself, even though he had a lot of knowledge of God, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. 
He, he knew everything there was to know about God. And yet look how he describes himself in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 14. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. There's a reality here of the, of the ignorance of our sin, that even, even if it is intentional, there's an ignorance in that reality of the holiness of God. There's an ignorance of God himself. And so as we, as we look at this reality, it's not saying that, that Aaron only made this day of atonement sacrifice for just the ones that people slipped up. It was for all their sins because all their sins were done in ignorance of the reality of the holiness of God. Leviticus chapter 16 gives us the details of this important day where we get this idea of atonement from because it was called the day of atonement. And we won't read through it. It's, it's a fairly lengthy passage. I'll just give you the highlights again. You know, put a star next to that one. Leviticus chapter number 16. Go read that. You got a lot of homework to do after this message to go read in the Old Testament. But here's just kind of the highlights of what would happen on this day of atonement. It's, it's good to note that while, the, while Aaron was doing this, or the high priest was doing this, no one else was supposed to be in the tabernacle. So he basically did all of this alone. All right, so the high priest would get a few animals together at the beginning. He would go and he would get a bull and he would get uh, for, for his own sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering for himself and for his family. And then he would get two goats, two male goats for the sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering for the people of Israel. And the next thing he would do is he would bathe himself fully and he would put on a specific uniform that he would wear to do all the rituals of the day of atonement, to make all the sacrifices for this day of atonement. He would put on, he would bathe completely and he would put on these clothes. And then he would go out and he would offer this bull as a sacrifice for his sin and for his family's sin so that he would be pure and able to offer the sacrifice for the people of Israel. He would take a censer and some incense, it measures out a specific amount of incense, and he would go beyond the veil and he would light that incense before the mercy seat so that the cloud of that incense would cover the mercy seat. That, that cloud of incense is often related to us as prayer. And so this cloud of incense would go up and then he would go and he would take some of the blood from the bull and he would, he would put the blood on the front of the mercy seat. And then he would flick the blood seven times in front of the mercy seat. And then he would go out and we would take the two goats for the sins of the people and he would cast lots over them. And one would be chosen. He would take that one and he would sacrifice that goat and he would, he would offer that as a sin offering to God on behalf of the people. And he would do the same process that he did with the bull and the blood behind the veil. He would do that with the, with the blood of the goat. 
And then he would take the, the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat and he would come out to the bronze altar and he would put blood on the horns of the altar. Sanctifying not just him, not just the people, but even the tabernacle itself to be made holy. And then he would take the other goat that was not slain and he would put both hands on the head of the goat and he would recite the sins of the people. And the sins of the people and the guilt of the sins of the people would be transferred to that goat and it would be sent out of the camp into the wilderness so that the sins of the people would be taken away. Does any of this sound familiar? Are you seeing the picture of what is to come? And then he would come back in and he would change clothes. After he had made these sacrifices and he would sacrifice the other two animals as, a, as an offering to God. As praise to God. That's a lot of work. That's a long day. Some of us who were washing cars felt like that was a lot of work. Some of you hunters who have who have slain animals, know that a deer is a lot of work. Can you imagine doing a bull and a, and a ram and a goat? Something else I forget. Four animals in a day. And all the rituals that go with it. And we can sit here and marvel, and I'm sure the Israelites sat there and they, they marveled at, at all the things that God had proclaimed for them to do so that their sins would be removed from them so that they could have, in a sense, a, sta- a right standing before God. And yet, even that atonement didn't go as far as it needed to. Holiness requires sacrifice and atonement. Isaiah chapter number six in his vision, he saw this reality firsthand. If you're familiar with the passage, you remember it says, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each having six wings and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Can you imagine that vision? This wasn't one time. It was this seraphim saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then over here, another one pipes up and says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost. I am undone, other translations say. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Is that how we view the holiness of God? 
Or is it just a theological concept to us? Is it just this reality that really doesn't affect the way that we live, really doesn't affect the way that we think, really doesn't affect how we view God himself? It's just a word to us. Isaiah saw, to some degree, the holiness of God. And he said, I am undone. I am ruined. I'm destroyed. Because I'm a sinner. Because I am a sinful man. But it continues, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Holiness requires atonement. But thirdly, holiness requires a better covenant. Even this covenant that God had given with Israel, through the law of Moses, the tabernacle, and all these wonderful things that the Jews would hold on to, that they would cling to. Even often after they would put their trust in Christ, they would, they would be tempted to go back to, to these works, to these things that they felt held, made, made things better in some way. As if Christ was not sufficient for every sin that they had done, everything they were doing now, and everything they would do Ever in the future, they would look at these rituals that that had so much history to them. And even God having proclaimed them as what was to be done. And the author says, it's not enough. It's not enough. Look with me. Here in verse 8, it says, by this, The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. As long as these rituals are in place, as long as man's works and man's rituals and man's actions are the things that we rely on for salvation, whether it be for obtaining salvation or keeping salvation, if it is not only in Jesus Christ, then it is futile. It is worthless. He says, gifts and sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience. It cannot do what needs to be done because we're sinful people, not just on the outside in our actions, but we're sinful people in our hearts. We are separated from a holy God because we are sinners, not just because we sin. We don't need a sacrifice that just takes away the acts. We need a sacrifice that takes away our heart our heart of stone, our sinful desire that gives us a heart of flesh. We need a better covenant. The gifts and sacrifices deal only with the physical, not the spiritual. And as long as they were looking to these earthly things, they would never find true atonement. 
We need a better offering. We need a better covenant to truly reconcile us to God. Are you thankful this morning that we have that? Are you thankful that we are no longer under the sacrificial system that in the end has no true hope because it's just day after day, year after year, making sacrifices only for the things of the body, but never for the things of the heart. But we have a better covenant. Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 22 says this, and he is the head of the body, speaking of Christ, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him reconcile to, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. Did you notice that? He has reconciled. It's done. It is finished. And that reconciliation does what? That reconciliation in the body of his flesh by his death presents us. Sinful people presents us as holy before a holy God. Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 27 Husbands, love your wives. We'll skip that part for now. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish so that he would present the church to himself, holy and without blemish. We can be holy before a holy God. We can approach a holy God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you thankful for that this morning? We can come to a holy God. This old covenant with all of its high rituals and bloody sacrifices and annual atonement and scapegoats could never do what Jesus Christ has done for us. The author of Hebrews reminds us that while this still stands, there is no hope. There is no hope. The veil was the final separation between God and man in the tabernacle and to go beyond it in the wrong way as the wrong person was certain death. Yet even that physical representation of the separation of a holy God from sinful man was removed in the death of Christ. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 51. Jesus is on the cross. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, And that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard it and said, this man is calling Elijah. 
And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Notice the next verse. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Even the physical representation of separation of holiness and sinfulness is gone. It is torn from top to bottom when Jesus Christ gave his life for us on the cross. In spite of the reality of God's holiness and the separation it causes with sinful man, God has provided a new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ to achieve what the old covenant could not. Jesus is the perfect priest offering the perfect sacrifice so that sinful rebels can be presented to a holy God as if they were holy. And the wonder is that He calls us to Him. He calls us to come to Him, that holy God, through the blood of Jesus Christ. I think of Jesus' words. He said, Come to me all who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. That's what faith is. Faith is simply resting in what Christ has done. The burden of the law, the burden of the tabernacle and the sacrifices. He says, lay that aside. Come to me. Maybe you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're trying to, to do good works and make yourself live up to what God would have you do. In the end, you're still a sinful person. In the end, you're still separated from a holy God and you need the atonement of Jesus Christ. Come to Him today. Maybe you're here this morning and, and even as Andy mentioned last week, you're, you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but maybe there's an area that you continue to fail in over and over. Maybe it's things people know about. Maybe it's a secret sin that you fail in over and over and over again. And maybe you're discouraged and you're thinking, how could God accept me when I keep failing? Remember that we have a better covenant. That everything is under the blood of Jesus Christ. All of our sins, past, present, future, is under the blood of Jesus Christ. And right now, He stands in glory interceding for us. Yes, He's interceding showing the wounds in His hands, but He's interceding presenting us as if we were holy to God. Do you realize that this morning? You are being presented as if you are holy to God. So as He calls us to do, live holy. Live holy.
because a holy God has called for us to approach him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that because of the blood of Jesus, we, as Hebrews says, can come boldly before the throne of grace. Father, because of the blood of Jesus, we can be called your children. Even this song that we're about to sing says, only a holy God would allow us to call you Father. God, that is hard to imagine when we come to the reality of your holiness and our sinfulness to think that you would even care for us, let alone seek to dwell with us, let alone to make us your children. God, we we marvel at this wonder and yet we thank you for it. We thank you for your mercy and your grace in the midst of your holiness. For drawing us to you. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that does not know you as their Savior, Father, that you would draw them today. That they would see your holiness, they would see their sinfulness and their need of an atoning Savior, a perfect Savior. I pray that they would seek out one of us to to know more about this perfect Savior in Jesus Christ and that by your grace you would save them today. Lord, often we think of your holiness as something to tremble at and it is true. But it is your holiness that sent Jesus to the cross. And for that we are grateful. The veil has been torn in two and our way to approach you has been made. And we praise you for that. And we thank you for that. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.